Thank you, Pastor Jim. That was a wonderful uh, word of introduction. And um, we're very thankful for this opportunity to be with you. Uh, it was several months ago, as Pastor Jim mentioned, that he contacted me. And step by step, uh, the relationship has grown. And we've been really blessed. And we had a wonderful time last night with uh, Beth Cote and her whole family. Really enjoyed that. And looking forward to getting to know the missions committee more. And something struck me. Um, Pastor Jim said that for the last three weeks or so, people have been praying for us. And I really, I really value that. And I don't know exactly what you prayed or when you prayed or how you prayed, but I do know that um, three weeks ago, I was having trouble. There were several days where I could not contact the guys in Cameroon and Chad. And I didn't know what they were doing. And um, one Saturday, we didn't even work together. And then... Um, on uh, the Wednesday, uh, roughly two weeks ago, we had great WhatsApp internet connection, and we got a lot done. And since then, it's gone really well. And I almost forgot those days when you know there was no connection. So keep praying, because that's how we work together when I'm not over there. Um, and it's incredible, um, because when we first went to the Kotoko, there was no communication with the outside world. When you went to the village, there was no mail, there was no phone service. You were just there with them and they were with you. And now I can actually call them and we can work for hours on the phone. So it's wonderful to see how the Lord is opening that opportunity. And it's wonderful that you're part of that as well. And so we're looking forward, forward to what the Lord will be doing in the coming years. So as I was preparing for this morning... My attention was drawn to, to Deuteronomy. So if you'd please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This passage, I believe, is as important as today as it was when Moses was teaching the people of Israel on the plains of Moab millennia ago. As you might remember, uh, Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And it's actually, actually a collection of sermons. It was his parting sermons. He was trying to teach the people of Israel as he knew very well his end was coming. Um, he was passing the leadership to Joshua. He knew that he was going to eventually die. He would die on Mount Nebo and never cross over into the promised land. And he had this burden on his heart that the people would remain faithful to God, that they would obey the Lord their God as they crossed over into the promised land. And so he preached and preached and preached, and then he wrote it all down. And then he entrusted it to Joshua. And as I've been studying this passage, um, I was just struck by what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 1 through 14. And so what I'll do is I'll read the first 14 verses, but we're really going to uh, focus on verse 2 and the command there. But as we study verse 2, I'll be stepping out and we'll touch a little bit on the other verses. So I'll just begin by reading uh, chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 14. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord our God the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Belpeor. For all the men who followed Belpeor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of, of the words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land that you're going over to possess it. So this passage, this is the incredible thing about God's word. Moses proclaimed this on the plains of Moab. He wrote it down for the people of Israel. And yet it is for us today. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So what Moses wrote, Paul reminds us, is for our instruction as well. And we need the same instruction, the same warning to live in obedience to God's word. And so let's look at um, verse 2 of chapter 4. We'll look at that in more depth. Because as Moses is exhorting the people, he reminds them very specifically in verse 2 not to add to what he's saying, the, the words of the commandments, and not to take from it, but simply to obey it. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to unpack that. So what I'll do, and I'll use four questions to sort of guide us through this as we unpack this command. First, we'll look at what is the command itself, and then I'll, I'll track you through all Scripture to Revelation, because we're going to see at different points in Scripture the same command in one form or another comes up, and that'll help us get a better, better picture of what is the command. What is um, 
Moses instructing and how does it relate to us today? So what is the command? Then we'll go to why not change the Word of God? Why not change it? And we'll look at the, the reasons for not changing it. And then we'll move to why are we drawn to change it? Obviously, we have a problem. We are going to be drawn to change God's Word. So why not? Why are we drawn to do that? And that really will get at our heart. It's an issue of the heart. Why are we drawn to change God's Word? And then the fourth question is, how do we live in light of this command? So we'll, we'll step through in those four questions. What is the command? Why not change the Word of God? Why are we drawn to change it? And finally, how do we live in light of this command? So what is the command? Well, we see here in verse 2, um, Moses says, do not add to what he's teaching them. And do not subtract from what he's teaching them. And he's referring to what he's teaching them at the moment, but he's also referring to things that he's taught them before. He specifically mentions the Ten Commandments that they had heard God teach from Mount Sinai when they were there 40 years before. And so all of that teaching that they've received, whether it was directly from God from Mount Sinai or whether it was from him as the mouthpiece of God, and all that he has written down and all that he's going to give them to take on into the promised land with them. All of that they are to obey and not add to it or take from it. And he's apparently concerned that they'll do that because he repeats this later. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, he returns to this same idea and says in Deuteronomy 12.32, whatever I command you, you shall not you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. So that's Deuteronomy 12.32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. So twice he says this very same command to the people. So he's very concerned that they will take what he, he has given them and start adding to it other teachings or detracting from it just completely forgetting it. No, instead, they need to carefully observe it and live in obedience to it. Now, if we continue on through Scripture, in the book of Proverbs, we find this same command. Um, in Proverbs 30, the sayings of Agur. Proverbs 30, verses 5 through 6. Agur writes, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you, and you be proved a liar. So God's word is, every word of God, he says, is tested. So he's using the imagery of metal, that you test a metal, you, you refine it, um, you make it pure. Once a metal is tested, it's pureless. It's as refined gold is as gold as it can be, right? Refined silver is, is as silver as it can be. And he describes God's word that way as being tested. And then he adds that God is a refuge for us. And if God is our refuge and his word is perfect, then we should simply live in obedience to it. But he knows, Agur knows, um, being a wise man, that that is not our inclination. So he says in verse 6, so do not add to his words. Do not add to his words. They're refined, they're perfect, there's nothing we can improve on them, don't add to God's word. 
And then he adds a warning. He says that God will rebuke us and prove us a liar. I, I have the image that that rebuke may be private, but proving you a liar might be public. I don't know if that's what Agur had in mind. But I think he is communicating that God will settle the situation. You don't change God's word. You don't add to it. In the book of Jeremiah, we have a similar emphasis on God's word and it being completely and faithfully communicated. This time it's from God himself speaking. So let's turn to Jeremiah 26. There's just a short passage there where God is instructing Jeremiah at the beginning of Jeremiah 26. And Jeremiah has a message to bring which is going to cause him to be rejected by his own people. And so God is driving home that he is to faithfully proclaim what he's told to say. So Jeremiah 26, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a word. So God is emphasizing there, my message that I'm giving to you, do not omit one word of it. And earlier in chapter 23, if you're already there in Jeremiah, just move back to chapter 23. There's a beautiful passage here where God lays out very clearly what he thinks about how his word is communicated and that he wants it communicated faithfully, accurately. And he has um, no regard for those who just are creative and make up dreams. So Jeremiah 23, verses 25 through 32. And as I read this, listen for the two contrasts. You have the false prophets and their dreams and the true prophets who have God's word. So Jeremiah 23, 25, I'll read through 32. I have heard what the prophets have said who falsely prophesy in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. So this isn't, I've always moved by this passage because there's such a stark contrast there are the false prophets and they're prophesying their dreams. And their dreams, what do their dreams have to offer? Nothing. God ends with saying that they, have, they don't offer the slightest 
benefit to God's people. And God even mockingly says, they let the prophets who have dreams, like, let them share their dreams. I mean, if that's all they have, let them share them. They're, they're of no value. But then he turns to his men, his prophets, and what are they to do? He says, let him who has my word speak my word in truth. He's saying, if you have God's word, realize what you have. You have the truth. Speak it truthfully. Speak it faithfully. It is something to deliver. And what, how does he describe it? He calls it grain compared to straw. It's a fire. It's a rock that shattered, a hammer that shatters rock. When we lived in Cameroon, the people there grew rice. And so often I'd go out to the rice fields and um, we had a vehicle, so I was in demand. I could help drive people out to the fields and I could help drive things back from the fields and I loved to do that. And one thing I didn't know about rice, you know, before we went there, to me, rice was the white stuff in a bag, you know. But I watched them growing it and it looks sort of like wheat. You know, it's a grain. And they would um, have fields of it and they would bundle it up, they'd cut it, tie it up in bundles, let it dry, and then they would take each little bundle and thresh it, because you want the grain, you don't want the straw. The straw looked really nice. I thought it might have some use. Zero use. They just throw it out. The goats don't even eat it. You can try to burn it. You can leave it. Hopefully it'll provide some nutrient for the soil as it decomposes. But basically, straw has zero value. What do they take home? What do they carefully pick to make sure they get all of it? It's the grain. And so God says here that his word is the grain. It's, it's the substance. And his word is effective. It is like the fire that consumes, the hammer that smashes the rock. And so when we have his word and when we proclaim it faithfully, the, what the others offer is nothing in comparison. And one last passage is from at the end of Scripture, the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. This might be a passage you're familiar with. When John ends the book of Revelation, he ends it with a warning. He says in Revelation chapter 22, 18 and 19, he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part of the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So in chapter one, John says that blessed are those who read his book and who listen to it. And now at the end, he says, you know, watch out. Now that you've heard it, don't change it. You know, don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Um, accept it and live by it. So it's, it's fascinating. We have Moses, who's writing the first books of Scripture, led by the Spirit to add this warning, don't add to or take from God's Word. And then you have John, the Apostle, writing the final book of Scripture, and what does he say? Don't add to it. Don't take from it. And then scattered in between, you know, in the Proverbs and the Prophets, we have this same idea that God's word 
is something that we receive. We don't change it. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. Or to put it positively, I mean, if you say don't change it, that's the negative. What if you put it positively? We're simply to accept God's word as it is, as his word from his prophets for us. And to the extent that we are to teach it or communicate it, we communicate what we received. We don't add to it. We don't embellish on it. We submit our lives to it and live in obedience to it. So that's what the command is. So why not change God's word? Why not change it? We've seen a few hints at the reasons as we've been reading through, but let's, let's draw them out clearly. So the first reason we don't change it is we can't improve on it. We can't improve on God's word. That's what Agur is saying in Proverbs 35 when he said God's word is tested. It's been refined. It's pure. Um, a similar um, description of God's word is found in Psalm 12.6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, filtered seven times. You know, seven in Scripture is a word that symbolizes perfection. So the word of God is like silver that's been perfectly refined. It's as refined as it can be. You can't add to it without without, um, corrupting it. And then Psalm 19, I'm sure you're familiar with. I'll read just a few verses from Psalm 19, uh, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much pure gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them, and keeping them, there is great reward. So how could we add to that? How could we improve on that? We can't. So we don't change God's word. And also another reason is if we, as we're entertaining that thought that we might add to or subtract from God's word, we're actually putting ourselves on a slippery slope. We will eventually disobey God's word. So the, the second point is just that we will disobey God's word if we start adding and subtracting to it. That was Moses' original point. So in Deuteronomy 4.2, He says, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord. That you may keep them. So he's saying, if you start adding and subtracting, you're not going to obey it. That's the inevitable consequence, is you're not going to obey God's word. But if instead you cultivate an attitude that you accept God's word, you humbly submit to it, you want to obey it, then you won't even think of changing it. So the thought, just the thought that you could change God's word just puts you on a slope that's going to lead to disobeying it. And not only disobeying it yourself, you're going to lead your family, your children, your grandchildren on that same slope of disobeying God's word. So Moses emphasizes that in the the passage, how it's not simply the people in front of him he's concerned about. He's concerned about their children, their grandchildren, that they've been commanded by God to teach their families uh, what God has taught them. 
And all of that will be disrupted if we begin to change God's word. And finally, we incur God's punishment and we forfeit his blessings as we change his word. Agar mentions that. Remember he said, God will reprove you and show you a liar. And then John in the book of Revelation, very dramatically, will the plagues of the book of Revelation will be added to your life and the blessings of the tree of life and the blessings of the eternal Jerusalem will be taken from you. So very vivid language that if we start changing God's word, there's nothing good that will come out of it. We actually will incur God's punishment and forfeit blessings. So if that's the case, then why do we have this inclination? Why do we need to be warned not to change God's word? Why do we have this inclination to change it? Just months before Moses said this to the people on the plains of Moab, he personally had changed God's word. And he suffered for it. And I don't know if this was in the back of his mind when he was preaching, but that event is really telling because at that moment, God spoke to him and told him what his heart was like. And he recorded it in the scripture. So in Numbers chapter 20, we have the account of when the people were rebelling at, at Kadesh because there was no water. And Miriam, Moses' older sister, had just died. And so Moses and Aaron are probably um, mourning and going through a difficult moment there. And now the people were rebelling on top of that, wanting water. And so we have the account in Numbers 20 of Moses um, where he is about to hit the rock. So I'll start reading in Numbers chapter 20, verse 6. And notice how God reveals what was wrong with his heart that led to him changing God's word. So Numbers 20, verses 6 through 13. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the temple of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them then the Lord said to Moses, saying, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it shall yield its water. So you shall bring water for them out of the rock and have the congregation and their livestock drink. So God saw and was aware of the situation and how the people were so angry with Moses and Aaron and God is going to graciously resolve it. All they have to do is go to the rock and speak to it. So Moses, verse 9, took the staff from before the Lord just as he had, been, had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, since you did not trust in me to treat me as holy inside of the sons of Israel, for that reason you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. The, those were called the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel argued with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. So Moses and Aaron, they did not accept God's command as he had communicated it to them. 
So they heard clearly God speak to them. He told them what to do. And they did not believe what they heard to be the best and right thing. They did not trust in God. That was God's assessment of their own hearts. We see that in verse um, 12. Since you did not trust in me to treat me as holy inside of the sons of Israel. So they did not trust in God. They did not believe him. They did not believe that what he said was the right thing to say in that situation. And so what did they do? Well, they decided to add to what God said. God did not say to rebuke the people. But they were feeling like they, you know, maybe Moses in his heart was angry with the people at that moment. He thought, now's a good chance because God's on my side and they're right in front of me. I'm going to rebuke them. So he rebuked them. Listen now, you rebels, he says to them. And then um, he states that they were bringing water out of the rock. He says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So he's clearly taking what would have been an opportunity to, for the people of Israel to see the greatness of their God, and he's taking the center stage, as it were. And then they subtracted from what God said. God said to speak to the rock, and they didn't speak to the rock. They had a better idea. They were going to strike it, so he struck it twice. And rightly so, um, God, knowing their hearts, um, punished them. And Moses and Aaron were not allowed to go into the promised land. And I think that may be behind some of the, the urgency in Moses' heart now. Because he even knows he himself is possible. It's possible for him to listen to God and not obey. And change God's word and add to it what he thought was right and subtract from it what he didn't think the people really needed to hear or see. And so he wrote, by the inspiration of the Spirit, this command twice, that they should not add to or take from God's Word. And I think there's a really striking contrast between Moses, the man of God who was so faithful in so many ways, and what Jesus said in his final week when he was in the temple in John chapter 12. So John chapter 12, I'll read verses 44 through 50. And listen to Jesus' attitude towards the word that he received from God. So John 12, verses 44. Now Jesus cried out and said, The one who believes in me does not believe only in me, but also in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. If anyone hears my teachings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not accept my teachings has one who judges him, the word I spoke. That will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what to say and what to speak. And I know what his commandment, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, I, therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Those are incredible words. The things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. That's the embodiment of saying, 
I will not add to God's word and I will not subtract from God's word. I will speak just what the Father has told me. So we see there that Christ has um, total trust in God the Father. He has total, he views what God tells him to say as he says, eternal life. He's not going to change God's word in any way. And he says there, I speak just as the Father has told me. So to the extent that we believe God, we believe his word, and the extent that we believe his word, um, we will not change it. And the, and the reverse is also true. The extent that we don't believe and trust God is the extent that we don't believe his word and the extent that we change it to make it what we want, what we believe is right. So how do we live in light of this command? I think the first thing is that we have to truly fear God in his word. Truly fear God in his word. And that's the point that Moses drives home when he first said these words in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Again and again, he refers to um, what God did and the day that they should remember, a day when God wanted them to fear him and his word. So, um, in verses 11 through 13 of, of Deuteronomy 4, I'll read that again. He reminds them, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he performed. He commands, commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So he's reminding them of that event when God first summoned them to Mount Sinai, had all the people appear, and as he records there, there was the, the, the mountain was quaking, there was a fire burning to the very heart of the heavens. The people were terrified. In fact, um, they heard the voice of God declaring the Ten Commandments, and then there's a pause. And the people, this is in Exodus chapter 20, the people then ask Moses, can we be excused? Can we leave now, please? You just be our intermediary. Whatever God tells you, we will listen to you and do. But please, let us be excused now. They were terrified. They did not want to be there. And that's what God wanted. He wanted them to have a right, profound fear of him and his word. And in Exodus 20:20, 20, 20, Moses reassures the people that God was working for their good. This was God wasn't trying to just scare them for no purpose at all. It was for their good. Because Moses says that when the fear of the Lord remains with them, they will not sin. When the fear of the Lord remains with them, they will not sin. And that is still true for us today. We need to cultivate that. The fear of the Lord. And God really wanted them to see that the fear of Him and the fear of His Word are the same thing. He wanted them to hear his word thundering forth from the mountain and then he wrote his word with his own finger 
know, that's a figurative language, but they knew that it was miraculously from God. It wasn't Moses who wrote it. it. It was God himself who wrote it with his finger. And it was all to communicate to them that they were to fear him and fear his word and so obey it. So the fear of the Lord is, is key. That is what we have to cultivate in our hearts. And centuries later, Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, uh, verses 1 and 2, records, records this um, word from the Lord. Um, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. So all things came into being, declares the Lord. But I look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is what God is looking for. Someone who trembles at his word. He says here that he's made everything in heaven and earth. There's nothing we can do for God. There's nothing we can give God. But he does look favorably on one thing. Our heart that trembles at his word. A humble and contrite spirit. So I would say that's the first thing to take away from this passage. Is to cultivate that fear of the Lord in his word. And then that should lead us to teach his word faithfully. I mean, teaching, you might, when you think of teaching scripture, you might think of someone at the pulpit or someone in the class, Sunday school class, teaching. But Moses makes it very clear that everyone that he was speaking to was to be teaching. They're all to be teaching God's word. In the home, to their children, to their grandchildren, they are to be teaching. We all have a responsibility to teach, and we teach it faithfully. We recount what we receive. We don't add to it or take from it. So in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, he says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. When God has worked in your heart or in your life in an incredible way, you make it known, right? You just share it. You don't have to be prompted. And he's telling them that's, that needs to be the character of, of your life. You're making these things that you saw God do known to your sons and your grandsons, to your children and grandchildren. And don't forget them. And he goes on in verse 10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at, at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So all the people at Mount Horeb were to teach. We're all to teach. It's as simple as having your, your daughter or granddaughter or great-granddaughter sit down by you on the couch and you open the scriptures and you say, let me read this to you. And then you're teaching. And then you share, you know, when I was your age, the Lord taught me this or this happened. You know, last night at, when we were at the Cotes, um, Beth shared these wonderful testimonies of the Lord answering prayers and how the Lord had blessed their family. And she didn't need to be prompted. It's just the overflow of our hearts, isn't it? When you think, when you're together with believers and just think about what God has done. 
And as we cultivate that, and that's part of our life, we're teaching. That should be part of our life. Instead of trying to add to God's Word or subtract from God's Word, we should just accept God's Word and share it, teach it, share it with our family, teach it with our children, and make that part of our life. And remembering all the things that God did and sharing that with Him. And then as I've been studying this passage, a third application I see is that we need to translate accurately as well. So we're living in obedience, um, fearing God and His Word. Like Christ said, He was sent and He was under the authority. It's not His own message. So we live in humble um, submission to God's Word, fearing God and His Word, so we faithfully teach it. And then that leads to faithfully translating it. And you may not be a Bible translator, um, but you still have a part in faithfully translating it. And why I say that is because we all have a part in um, translation in the sense that um, you are hopefully praying um, you may give at points in your life to translation, and you're the one, had, you have a role in making sure that translations are accurate. How does that work? Well, um, there are a lot of people who want to translate. There's a lot of things to translate. You can translate scripture, you can translate um, different resources, different ministries are translating teaching, um, even... Um, we were talking last night about translating books of doctrine for churches around the world. And that's good. That's good. So when someone comes to you and wants you to give to translation, will they translate faithfully or not? And we have to value accurate, faithful translation and make sure that we are praying and supporting and helping that go forward and not the other endeavors. I was on a flight back from Africa and on the flight, it's like a six, seven, eight hour flight from Europe to North America. So I get to watch two or three movies. And so, you know, I went through the normal ones. And, and then I saw The Chosen. And I thought, I've heard a lot about The Chosen. I might as well watch it. I'd never watched it before. I've heard people say good things about it. People say critical things about it. I'd never seen it. And my curiosity was sparked because a, a, a very wealthy family is giving money now for the chosen to be translated into different languages around the world. And I thought, wow, money is going away from Bible translation to translate the chosen. Is this a good thing or not? I don't know anything about it. Okay, I'll watch it. And so you might know it's a historical drama. It's supposed to be taking the life of Christ and making it maybe filling it out, adding some things that aren't there. Let's give a little bit back story of Matthew, backstory of the different apostles. And so um, the creators are very upfront that they're adding things to scripture. And but maybe it's good. You know, whenever you make a movie from something, you have to change it some, right? So I I watched it and I was really disappointed. So because yes, they added things, but what really disturbed me was what they took away. They took away from the, the Christ of the Gospel who is very determined and knows who He is. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is not puzzling about who He is. He is the Son of God who has came 
to give his life to redeem um, a people for God. He's come to teach, even as a child. Remember, he goes to the temple and he's teaching. And he says, I have to be about my father's business. So in The Chosen, in the episode I watched, he was like not sure of who he was and what he was supposed to be doing. And these children came and they encouraged him to teach. And they said they really liked what he was teaching and they were going to take him to their parents so he could teach the people in their village. And I thought, wow, this is really changing God's word. This is another image. This is a soft Christ who isn't the hard preaching man of conviction that we find in the Gospels. And how does that relate to us at all? I mean, that's some program they're making streaming on Netflix. Well, that all started with crowdfunding. Several thousand Christians gave on average $65 to get it all going. And now it's all running all by itself. It's independent of anything we could say. But it started with people in the pews giving just a small donation to get it starting. Someone said, let's have a a new dramatization of the life of Jesus for people who will never darken the door of a church. And so you have to be very discerning these days. Um, There's a lot of people who want to do translation and of all kinds of resources. And we have to be very discerning. Um, I was at a meeting several years ago and they, I heard a re- of, of, a, of a Bible translation organization and they shared a report. They had hired a marketing firm to tell them what were the best words to use with us to motivate us to give to their organization and what were those key phrases and the ways to say things so that we would donate. And so we just need to be wise in this age, uh, wise in how we approach the word, how we approach ministries. We want to engage in Bible translation. We want to engage in missions. We want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth, and we need to be um, as wise as serpents in this day. So we need to be committed to the word of God, and that includes faithful translation. And when we have faithful translation, we can have faithful teaching. And when we have faithful teaching, then we can really see that the the fear of God and his word is instilled in our hearts, in our children's hearts, in our family's hearts. And so I think this is why Moses, as the Spirit was leading him, was right to say and insist on this. Do not add to God's word. Do not subtract from it. Simply live in obedience to it. Accept it as we have received it and live in obedience to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which speaks speaks so clearly to our hearts. You know that we, in our own flesh, in our own wisdom, we think that we can do things better, that we could adjust things, that we could uh, address things just a little differently. But in your word, you remind us that we should humble ourselves before you and your word. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to be like our own Lord and Savior who said that he spoke only what he was told. Help us, Lord, to value your word, to read it, to read it with our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, to share it. Help us to conform our lives to it. And we just thank you, Lord, that we have it. And help us to be good stewards of it. And thank you for this uh, group of brothers and sisters who are committed to it. Bless them and help them to grow in their love for you and your word 
and help them to share that love. And we pray in Jesus' name.